And that was my actual entrance to blockchain. I've come back from academia, moved to industry, but kept talking about this mm-hmm. uh, to the pirate, Israeli pirate party. I kept calling it crypto governance and, and was like explaining to people that I've seen the light in academia. I've, mm-hmm. um, and the, in 30 years at most, this will come to market because that's typically the time it takes to take a technology from 30 science. 30 years. 33-0. That's typical time it takes to take a technology from science to deployment, to widespread deployment in the field. If you think of RSA and other cryptographic techniques, they were invented by uh, the RSA writer, Ives Shamir Adelman in the 70s, uh, late 60s even, there were a lot of work. And uh, it was really only come to market in the late 90s with Zimmerman's PGP and early 2000s with uh, banking, mm-hmm. uh, online banking and e-commerce, which was enabled by being able to write your credit card in, on the internet and transmit it secure, securely. Mm-hmm. This science exists since the 60s and 70s. If you were the president of the United States, you could talk to the president of, of China, of, uh, of Russia, over a secure communication line mm-hmm. enabled by this kind of technologies. However, if you were a simple citizen, uh, you didn't have access to such technology. And there was a re- gradual process of democratization, of adoption, that caused you to be able to now have Telegram and and uh, and uh, everything is SSH is uh, HTTPS now, and um, so everything we send online these days is encrypted using these technologies that 40 years ago were the, uh, only available to president. This is episode 27, and I'm your host, Andre Delpkerk. You can find me at It's DeAndre on Twitter, as well as the show at Pioneer's Show on Instagram. This interview was done last year during the Startup Night in Berlin, organized by Deutsche Telekom. It was an amazing event with a lot of startups and great opportunity for people to network in Berlin. I really had an amazing time, and that's where I met today's episode guest, one of the speakers at the event, Elad Verbin. Elad is a mathematician, computer scientist, and a great thinker, and one of the investors at Berlin Innovation Ventures. In this episode, we actually go through a lot of topics, from the future of AI and ethical AI, ventures coming from the academia, cryptography, and the future of blockchain. Well, it was a huge amount of topics that, not for loving the conversation, but because it was almost midnight, the conversation has ended. But worry not, we are to schedule another conversation in the future. He's looking for investments in algorithmic innovation, and it's an area that's a lot of upside for sure. A lot of people might know that technology built in the academia actually comes to the real world in a few years along the way. However, not a lot of people know how far along these ideas come from. This fascinated me. Elad is always looking for what he calls R&D startups, and I find this once again fascinating, giving knowledge, a platform, and also runway for the next innovative ideas coming from the theoretical worlds. I don't want to take a lot more of this intro, so let's jump into the conversation with Elad. Welcome to the Pioneer Show, Elad. How are you? Very good. Thank you. Thank you. It's a great pleasure to have you here on the Pioneer Show, and let me just mention that. Where are you from, by the way? I'm from Israel, born and bred. So it's a great pleasure to be here on Startup Night, organized by Deutsche Telekom and a lot of other big partners. We already talked with Chen, the, the founder. And let me tell you that you're the first Israeli entrepreneur that I get to talk here on the Pioneer Show. Oh, wow. That's exciting. I love being the first. <laughs> it's also your first interview for a podcast, correct? It is, yes. I've been listening to podcasts for my adult life, but I haven't uh, been interviewed on one. So, so this is the first the opportunity. time. For, no, thank you. So for people at home that don't know who you are, care to give us a presentation about yourself? Yes. So I'm a computer scientist turned uh, startup um, scientist turned uh, investor. 
So I uh, did, uh, I got my education doing a PhD in Tel Aviv University mm-hmm. in algorithms. I moved to two postdocs, one in uh, China, in Tsinghua University, under uh, Andy Yao, who is uh, this famous computer scientist that... Uh, Um, was a faculty and you know won all the Turing Awards and the Gettle Awards in Princeton and I uh, was uh, wanted to go back to China and basically jumpstart the computer science scene in uh, China I was his first one of his first uh, postdocs there mm-hmm. I moved to another postdoc in Oros University and uh, I moved to industry being the lead scientist for a hedge fund in Israel mm-hmm. and um, I always wanted to move to Berlin since uh, 2007 actually when I first came here and so what a great potential this city has to offer and um, you know how we get to build something here for ourselves um, so I uh, I moved to Berlin in 2015 um, did some industry work and realized with some uh, friends and colleagues back from uh, Israel that what this city needs is not uh, more smart R&D experts but rather smart R&D investors Because R&D investors, can yes. you care to explain what that is specifically? Yes. So um, we, we talked to founders, to Berlin founders, startup founders a lot. And what we discovered is that the investors don't understand uh, what they're trying to do. The Berlin uh, startup ecosystem is based on e-commerce traditionally because that's what started here the most. Berlin was in a way a, a spearhead for uh, e-commerce in Europe and And uh, was super successful doing inter- that. Through Rocket, through Rocket Internet, Internet and its ventures, yeah. And it did amazing things to the startup ecosystem in the city, but it also defined it to a large extent. So um, business angels uh, and other investors in Berlin would expect you to satisfy um, the metrics that are set, that are typically satisfied by e-commerce websites mm-hmm. or startups, which is exponentially increasing revenue. gradually mm-hmm. and um, these are not the metrics that we know from back home so with my uh, two Israeli colleagues we know the pattern of startups that um, start by developing by a year or two at least of developing defensible tech meaning tech that can't be easily replicated and it relies on highly technical innovation and then once you have this Um, moon technology or, or, um, or sci-fi technology either you fail in developing that which is a good thing right you want to fail early in developing your core mm-hmm. uh, but if you do succeed you have something that is two you know sci-fi capabilities that you can then build a market on Israeli startups have the other problem that they sell too early rather than becoming uh, sustainable long-term businesses we can go back to that but they do this first um, uh, they do this first Uh, stage of developing technology really well we came here and we realized that this doesn't exist so much in Berlin partly because the metrics the KPIs for this are not are not there no one will uh, will tolerate a startup not making money for a couple of years just developing tech so we met uh, a lot of founders like this and we realized we need to we have a lot of so we were we were in the beginning we were really uh, unhappy and and um, maybe um, We're unhappy about that because it meant that as consultants or as mm-hmm. startup employees we didn't we couldn't do the thing we are best at which is developing technology uh, but at some point we realized that uh, this might be a huge opportunity because if no one does that we can be the first and uh, we set up a what we didn't know what it's going to be would it be an incubator a company builder mm-hmm. and a VC and we quickly realized that 
if we are to do something new like that, it has to bring its own funding for a, a long term because um, because the knowledge or the, the the infrastructure to do this didn't exist back then. It, it's a bit better now, mm-hmm. but um, so we have to bring the money with us for a long term runway, and um, and uh, so it pretty much has to do to be a VC. So we started. Um, making you know pitching this around and talking to experienced VCs mm-hmm. uh, Blue Yard System One uh, many others and we realized gradually that we're not the only ones in Berlin that's doing this we are one of the only ones in Europe uh, so Whoa. we're doing yeah it was a big revelation it kind of came gradually as we realized that really experienced VCs are asking us for advice on estimating tech risk and figuring out the uh, Um, potential of, of R&D heavy startups and we were like why are they asking us and we gradually realized they're asking us even with the, even though we're the new kids on the block they're asking us because you we have are the, white, the, only, the right knowledge we are the only one and they didn't necessarily know that how to evaluate us mm-hmm. um, uh, but I mean we have some social proofing from Israel but really it's because we're the only ones who even claim to have this ability to evaluate tech startups mm-hmm. um, you know two high-tech risk very early stage startups where there's two founders with an idea and some um, a high potential high-risk idea that they say we'll implement this amazing algorithmic uh, venture and this will be sci-fi and we can build a business on top of this and we found that no one is even claiming to be able to evaluate whether they're able to develop this thing or what is the potential of these algorithms so um, so we found ourselves in this really lucrative position and uh, We are um, uh, yes, yeah, so um, to summarize, so we've, we've started I've started as a, as a scientist doing algorithms and complexity theory and lower bounds and stuff like this, bit of game theory. Um, started in academia, uh, mm-hmm. was supposed to be kind of meant to be an academic uh, for many years, and gradually was um, disillusioned with um, the academic publisher perish system and felt like I am. maybe not as adapted to it as I would uh, think. And I explored industry and loved it, uh, bringing these scientific ideas to the market. So I moved to be a startup um, a researcher mm-hmm. and then uh, to an investor. And now we are launching uh, probably around November our first fund, um, Berlin Innovation Ventures, but probably rebranding as Moonmath Moon Capital. Moonmath Capital. Yeah. It, it's a catchier name even though Berlin innovation ventures it's easier to remember because moon math you can blah, blah, blah. yeah this is my opinion though but yes but I think that moon math it's almost like the moonshot thing the the moonshot factory from Google yeah. so I think that's that's a really good name one one question that I would like right now to tackle is that you're not the first one or that I've had this conversation but I seem to to feel like you The movies kind of screwed us up in the the, the the sense that I never thought I would see so many startups coming from the academia and from PhD mm-hmm. I never thought that was a thing I always thought the PhD was that uh, the geek thing that's r- r- reading something on a library but apparently the more I read the more PhD candidates bring so many interesting ideas that I never thought of it why do you think that there's such this stigma about the outside perspective I'm not coming from inside the academia world but why do you think that so many people 
disgrace the academia when we're talking about entrepreneurship? There's a few levels to unpack here because I'm actually a bit suspicious of the ability of pure PhDs with no prior industry experience to start uh, sustainable startups. I, uh, partly because I come from academia and because I'm a startup uh, innovator that comes from academia, I know how hard it is to move from academia directly into, into startups. So, um, uh, but, but, uh, Wait, so what do you mean disgraced? Uh, I, I think that a lot of people, myself included through a lot of years until quite recently, I never thought of this, but I think because of movies like Social uh, Social Network, mm -hmm. reading about stories from Mark Zuckerberg, Steve Jobs, people that dropped out of college mm -hmm. and were able to create such big behemoths mm -hmm. that people start looking at academia as somewhat disposable. I see the the myth of the college dropout. I've I've I had this tweet the other uh, month, uh, maybe, of someone saying, if you really want to get to to have marketable skills and to be successful, you shouldn't go to a college. You should go work for free for three years at various companies that do the things you want to learn. I you learn much Gary more Vaynerchuk and have marketable. You've, you've seen that? I think so. I think Gary Vaynerchuk said something similar to that. Mm, maybe. And I replied to that. I usually not, I'm usually trying to not be too contrarian over Twitter because the context is very hard to capture in 140 mm -hmm. characters. No, it's 280. But, uh, only if you're special. No, I don't think so. Is it? I think everybody has access to maybe. it already. I think I, yeah, maybe. But yeah, so um, you're saying. So, um, so I don't agree with that. I mean, this time I was tempted to, I mean, I did a reply because um, you you can have, so three years of industry experience are better than three years of college, but uh, 10 years of industry experience plus three years of college is better than 13 years of industry experience. I, I am a huge believer in the power of academic uh, education. Over the long to, term. Over the long term, to open your horizons, to teach you not only what you want to do, but why you'd want to do it, to tell you about what kind of fields of knowledge is out there, we should really separate the American education system um, that is more uh, general, like horizontal, mm -hmm. than the German and Israeli education system that's like based on one um, field that you choose in advance. I think that's um, generally Europe as a general. I think it's pretty much the same yeah, thing. Yeah, I think the Brits do it like the Americans more or less, but but it, it's complicated. Uh, in I, Portugal, you, you choose a thing and you go through yeah, it. Yeah, as well, as well. I like both systems. I slightly prefer the Israeli one or the European one. But in general, I think that even that you get exposed to so many fields of knowledge in academia that you then know that they exist and I got a lot from my academic education. I think the myth of the college dropout is, I mean, we look at the soccer. You can't decide what to do. If you want to be a basketball player, you can't decide what to do by looking at the NBA players. There's so few of them um, saying it, there's a confirmation bias in there or a selection bias rather saying, let's look at the people who were most successful and do what they did. Uh, very often, these would be the people who got lucky, maybe, the people who got more visibility. Partly, there's a feedback effect of the people who you wouldn't expect but uh, get more recognition. So uh, the college dropouts are more visible, even though a lot of the founders are, you know, uh, the Bill Gates type. Uh, he 
שלי. So Bill Gates has some academic publications in my field actually, mm-hmm. I, I reference the Bill Gates paper with Papa Dimitrio in one of my papers. Um, uh, so uh, he had a more traditional education. A lot of the startup founders that really matter are PhDs and uh, a lot of the startup founders that really matter are not PhDs but employ a lot of PhDs and have co-founders that are PhDs. I think an academic uh, education is very important. It teaches you to uh, think in a methodic way, analytical way. And um, I really estimate, uh, I have a high esteem of people who didn't go through academia at all. It's, um, it's a matter of character. I understand that. But one of the things that, I don't know how to put this, but you said that we cannot, if you want, we want to be basketball players, we should not look at the NBA because it's a very small sample size to be able to emulate because there are so many factors that can come into this equation yeah. that you will never, never be able to, to do the same thing. Yeah thing is it is my assumption that to be an entrepreneur there are much more copyable i won't say skills but things uh, behaviors that can help you succeed might not reach steve jobs might not reach elon musk success even though right now that might be in terms of the 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 things that tesla is going through but okay let's call jeff bezos which is at the top maybe jack ma or something like that you can never you may never reach those heights but there are a simple set of behaviors and skills that you can maybe acquire to reach comparable in comparison to our to my level right now Mm -hmm. so if i know that you studied computer science you're a phd your knowledge will be much bigger than mine is different just uh, it will be down a different path i would say but i think for example computer science specifically it's a it's a very very valuable skill in all countries in all languages you don't need to learn german to be working in a german company or in germany with a computer science degree yeah or some computer science knowledge rather yeah but you don't need a phd to of course uh, do valuable work in computer science if anything a phd is a weird thing to do because um so so at some point the computer science at some point the academia realized that it's taking all of these uh, all of these uh, PhD students, and um, and <sighs> there are not that many jobs, and there mm-hmm. are many many PhD students. And at some point, um, it became common knowledge that as an advisor, you should be taking the PhDs or the people, the students who want to be your PhDs, and telling them, listen, uh, why do you want a PhD? Uh, it's probably not for you. PhDs are weird things. They're basically an academic license to procreate. That's their only function. <laughs> the only difference, the only difference between a PhD, someone who has a PhD and not, is that the, someone who has a PhD is allowed to train other PhDs. Oh, that's the uh, difference, right? I, I think so. I, the degree doesn't mean that much. I mean, what were you conferred? What's your, what's the value of a PhD? I mean, it's some signaling, but mostly the, the actual, the, the real, only actionable this uh, difference is that you're allowed to give PhDs or allowed to uh, rather in, uh, advise PhD students. Um, so the main difference between a master's degree, be it an MBA or a master of the science or master of arts, and a PhD will be that distinction. And the only the, actionable, the only actionable difference. Yeah. Um, I so that's the value. I mean, I, the common the common thinking is that the a PhD does not have 
industry or, or, or marketable value by itself unless mm-hmm. you're continuing in academia. In Germany, that's not exactly true. In Israel, it is. No one cares that someone has a PhD in Israel. <laughs> um, uh, it, if anything, it might be negative signaling, meaning that you make bad career choices. Really? Uh, yeah, yeah. I, th- I don't know about the US, but I suspect it's the same. Germany has high esteem for PhDs. For a reason that I'm a cultural, uh, historical reason that I'm not able to fully comprehend. But um, PhDs are weird. Uh, the main reason to do a PhD is because if you're really uh, fascinated by a topic and you want to study it for a long term uh, without needing to actually justify that to anyone beyond curiosity-based research. It depends on your field. I'm talking about the more scientific mm-hmm. and more theoretical fields. And um, then you're doing this PhD, you're presumably... Uh, thinking about being a professor like I did and uh, maybe you're hoping to be one of the top f- professors in the world like right? being a top 100 or top 200 uh, computer science professor is a bit like being a top like an NBA player really it's a w- uh, yeah it's a, a unique it's a unique uh, thing meaning you're at the absolute top of your field but uh it's a weird thing to, to, to aim to because most people won't be at this 100, 200 top people. Most people will be at the 10,000 level. And I think by, by comparison to be a startup founder, you shouldn't look at Jeff Bezos or, or Zuckerberg. You should set your goal somewhere around the startups that actually bring value to humanity, significant value. Maybe there's probably 10,000 of them. And you should say, look at the top 10,000 startup founders and say, what do they have in common? And I think the thing Highly that they educated. have in common is not that they're college dropouts. I, I, I was having the conversation the other day, one of the episodes that was already recorded, it was that if we think real hard, right now I can only remember four dropouts. <laughs> Zuckerberg? But how many PhDs do you remember? I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I can remember of two, the, the Google guys. The Larry and Sergey, yes. But... Outside of that, I don't remember. But dropouts, I think yeah. of Larry Ellison, Zuckerberg, Steve Jobs, Bill Gates. Mm-hmm. Bill Gates wasn't a dropout. N- wasn't he? I'm pretty sure he wasn't. I know his academic paper, so you know. Okay, probably. But, but, okay, then three. I, I know his advice. I know the guy who he wrote this paper with. Okay, He's then an amazing uh, Greek computer scientist. Papa well, then let's even short it out. Yeah. Three. Yeah. Zuckerberg, Steve Jobs, and Larry Ellison. Yeah. I can't think of anyone else who reached... I think there's a, there's a weird fetishism with academic degrees. I think there, some people overestimate them massively and some people underestimate them massively. Mm-hmm. And, and honestly, they're not that important one way or another. You should do the thing that would get you towards where you want to be mm-hmm. and be most valuable to you, to society, to the people around you. And for some people, that's a PhD. And for some people, it's working in some other stuff. And, and that's fine. Um, uh, making the right choices about how to spend your time on earth is, is the most important thing. Taking that on the segue of spending your time, going back to some of the things that we already touched base with. You said you were doing, you are an R&D investor. R&D, yes. Uh, research and development. So do you do the research and development on companies that are mainly focused in the beginning in R&D? Or is, that, is R&D investment a different kind of investment where you do other things that normal VC world might not do. So let me let me start by giving a little bit more background, sure. right? So, uh, you know, we'll start from the beginning. A VC is an, a body that, or a company that takes money uh, 
from investors mm-hmm. and allocates it to startups in exchange for equity typically mm-hmm. now there's also token investments so we are glorified money managers we like a hedge fund manager like a banker like an investment manager with much we, more risk though with different profile of risk uh, we uh, take money from entities that have money to invest they typically don't give us all their money they give us a One percent of their money, most of their money should be in real estate in bonds and other uh, stable uh, elements, but some of it should probably be in tech. Uh, they give us money to invest. We collect uh, some um, tens of millions of uh, dollars that we call upon as needed. We don't hold them in our bank account. We uh, take a, a little bit of this as a management fee. It's typically two percent a year. It's enough to run you know to keep the lights on and to pay salaries. And um, we take uh, the bulk, the vast bulk of this money, and we try to make good investments with it. And good investments mean those that will have good return of investment over a while. We are able to make really long-term investments, probably the longest you can find outside of government investments. We are typically able to invest for 10 or 12 years. That's unusual. Um, And we put this money into startups that we believe in with high conviction. Very few startups. Uh, for us, it would be six, six startups a year. Uh, invest this money and basically buy the, the financial explanation of this is we buy equity. Mm-hmm. Like the startup has issues 100% of stock. We buy 10% of this stock for, for example, in exchange for, for example, uh, 300,000 euros. Uh, now we hold this equity. What we want is that at the end of the fund, most of this, like most startups, most of these startups will fail. Some of them will fail in the form of getting uh, sold uh, for not that much more than was invested in them. Some of them will be actually successful but won't reach their vision that they set out for mm-hmm. themselves. Some will outright uh, say, uh, well, this is not working out. Let's do something else. And few of them, but hopefully an important few, will succeed in actually reaching their vision of providing an, a, a very new thing in the world. We are choosing the ones that are focused on tech development, meaning um, uh, algorithms. So for us, we invest in algorithmic startups, meaning startups that algorithms and new algorithmics is the core of Of their innovation we make very early stage investments let's say these 300,000 mm-hmm. uh, uh, euro investments into a team of like let's say two three four people uh, that this money will last I mean uh, we, out of a round of let's say 700,000 or a million mm-hmm. this money will last for maybe a year and a half and uh, this startup has just started we typically are the first investors in the startup and the thing that's unique the thing that's unique about us is that we uh, take a startup that's at uh, very little funding and we make it into and we try to get it from a place where they have ideas that are based on some academic maybe academic work mm-hmm. um, and try to make it into a place where these ideas have a POC and some uh, market proof, uh, concepts. proof concept yes um, and some market um, kind of uh, Uh, some algorithmic tenability proving that these algorithms really stand for themselves mm-hmm. and are able to be deployed in a in a real product and uh, at that point we are where an e-commerce startup starts so by the end of this year and a half 
these algorithms, this startup has proved that the ideas, that the scientific ideas really can work, and now they can start selling it and make this revenue happen. When you talk about algorithms, first of all, can you give an example of a company that's used, that, that started as an algorithm company? Yes, so Google, I think, is the most classic example. Google and, and Skype, I think, are, are really great examples. So Google, if you remember what the world was like when... Uh, I don't. Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm an old guy by now. I'm 36. I remember the first time I saw... I literally remember the first time I saw Google because someone showed it to me in the university, in the uh, computer science uh, wow. uh, lab in uh, Schreiber building in Tel Aviv University. Someone told me, look at this amazing thing. Uh, a, good, a good friend. And I was like, yet another search algorithm. I'm already very comfortable with Yahoo. I'm not very good at <laughs> early adoption. Um, <laughs> and I was like, what's the problem with Yahoo? And he's like, no, no, this is a new thing. You have to see it. So he told me, what do you want to search? And I told him what I want to search. And he wrote the words and the thing came up. And he was like, look at how great these results are. You didn't have to find a particular index where this is, but it's not like Hotbot either or Alta Vista. It actually finds good, good results. And I was hooked from the first day. It was like unbelievable results. Um, and that's what a true algorithmic innovation looks like. Uh, Larry and Sergey invented with their advisor. I, I, I'm blanking on who it exactly was. Uh, Um, I, I forget who it was. He's a great computer scientist in Stanford, I think. Mm, I don't know, Caltech. sir. Anyway, um, so they invented a system, you know, the now famous PageRank algorithm. Mm -hmm. They invented an algorithmic system that captures something that's uh, truly valuable, right? Uh, the, the value of a, of a website as expressed or as measured by the amount of links pointing to it and their value themselves, right? This um, uh, kind of a page rank, um, mm -hmm. like the eigenvalue base, there's some linear algebra in there, but basically uh, if a lot of uh, web pages point to you and they're really good web pages. And the amount means, of time that someone gets you on your website, everything. That was not in the original page rank. Really? That, yeah, Google doesn't really use page rank anymore. They have, you know, progressed uh, beyond that. But the original page rank algorithm was very pure and a very clean concept and super powerful. It's someone figured out how to capture the value of a website in a formula or in an, rather in an algorithm that can be computed. And that was the big innovation. Now, I have a, a big question about algorithms. And in today's age, I think it's very important to tackle. It's just that algorithms at the end of the day were built by humans, correct? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You can add preconceptions that might be harmful. Yeah. Let's take into example, I don't care if it's right, right or left in terms of the politic area, but mm -hmm. if someone is building the algorithm, there will be some biases there. Mm -hmm. They might not be interesting or they might be at some point even dangerous. Yes. What's your opinion in this situation? So I think this is a very important thing for us humans and regulatory entities and, uh, you know, societies to think about. Uh, there's a great book that I can recommend about this called Weapons of Math Destruction mm -hmm. by... Um, by, uh, uh, I forgot the author's name, she's great, Kathy O'Neill. So it's a great book about this, and if you want a more technical treatment, there's uh, a whole 
a work group and conference dedicated to this run by my uh, academic colleagues um, called uh, by Moritz Hart and others. This is called the F- F- FATML, so Fairness and um, Accountability in uh, Machine Learning. Mm-hmm. It's a great conference. They published, uh, you know, the papers online. You can read about them. You can read them. So there's a lot of thinking about how to measure bias, how to avoid bias in algorithmics. And this is really important for us to talk about. There's, the reality is that there's bias in every system in the world that's created by humans, uh, in government, in law, in the, econ- in the economy, the thing is, in startup night. Sorry to interrupt. Um, the thing yeah. is, for, let's take Google, for example. Yeah. And I think Google is supposed to be The, and right now it's built like this. It's the end-all, be-all solution for search and for discovery. I mean, that's what... It's supposed uh, to be, at least. I mean, no, it's supposed to be a company. I mean, it was built as a company that's supposed to satisfy the needs of most people most of the time. And their need would be to find results that are somewhat useful for what they're searching. It's not trying to be fair. Um... We should not, this comes up in blockchain a lot, we should not put our ethics on artifacts of technology. We should rather realize that these artifacts and uh, the incentive systems that create them are not built for our ethical, keeping our ethical preferences in mind. And we have to control these ethics in some way, such as us coming together for collective action, Or regulation or uh, choosing us as people choosing to use the more ethical uh, alternative there are many ways to try to make the world a more ethical place but none of these come from hoping that these incentive-based uh, systems do the thi- magically do the thing we want them to I think that's uh, removing responsibility from ourselves and putting it where it simply is can't is not there's no system for putting it there yeah but what, what I was saying is and focusing is just that I th- I'm very I'm honestly very scared of algorithms and when algorithms are supposed to be consumer focused mm-hmm. because then you're at you're on the mercy of the biases of the people that created those algorithms and w- mm-hmm. when it's mostly information based you're going to lose information because mm-hmm. I mean I On, in code possibly on in the algorithm building there might be not there might not be enough it's like that idea of space if you change half a degree to the right mm-hmm. in the first two meters you won't feel a difference but after 10 million kilometers mm-hmm. you'll be millions of kilometers apart yeah there's an Obama quote about turning a ship very early the your, your job as a captain is not to turn a ship massively you know dramatically late but turn it early by a few degrees oh, I didn't know that yes I think his interview with Mark Meron I think it's and, beautiful and I think that when we're talking about algorithms and in terms of algorithmic information based I'm not talking about algorithms in terms of how to do machine learning and AI but my main concern honestly speaking is that if you have a bias on the building of the algorithm when it's consumer focused let's say YouTube let's say Facebook that has its own algorithm let's say Twitter let's say whatever that's supposed to to deliver to consumers at a scale I think we're talking about something that can be quite dangerous in terms of misinformation and misinformation in today's age is incredible mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm quite scared about that so 
before we talk about blockchain and its ability mm-hmm. to curb this misinformation and possibly to make it worse, it has both make potential. Make it worse? Oh, yeah. Okay, we'll, we'll talk uh, about that we'll, for sure. We can get to that. Um, yeah. uh, let me comment on algorithms, um, algorithms in general. I think the risks that you point out are... real in the sense that the algorithms you know with great power comes great responsibility mm-hmm. algorithms are very powerful entities especially when they are running by themselves like they will soon um, they are uh, they're infinitely scalable once you write once someone writes an algorithm that algorithm can be reproduced infinitely and run by itself on data that is provided to it and it's very hard to change an algorithm especially if it was the result of a neural network for example but mm-hmm. not just so algorithms are incredibly powerful and uh, you know it's like the atomic bomb it can give you nuclear energy it can give you nuclear bombs every technology in our history of humanity of, of science was used for both good and evil um, the fertilizer right uh, um, fertilizer the same technology that created the fertilizer created chemical weapons uh, the same technology that created the V2 two rocket the Werner von Braun rockets mm-hmm. and it hit London and you know killed you know uh, tens of millions of people in both sides are also was also the technology that brought us to the moon um, technology I wouldn't say it's free of ethics because it has a lot of the ethics of the people who created it but rather technology can be used both for good and evil and it's the role of our governance methods and we as you know midspace uh, squishy humans to decide how to use it and I think the fact that technology is used for bad so much points to our um, disadvantages or, or weaknesses as humans in collective in collectively acting and collectively finding the most positive some um, activities and ways to collaborate uh, this can also be improved using algorithms of course so it's a bit of a cyclical problem but our it's a meta meta search meta problem is I like recently I, I've been thinking a lot about government as an algorithm so taxation is a simple algorithm for example taxation uh, is you know the tax law is a basic a set of algorithms that allow you to calculate how much taxation you'll give and policing and especially the legal system is also an algorithm it says if then right there's a lot of if then mm-hmm. with some ju- human judgment thrown inside of there when you look at court proceedings and the way that the law is written uh, there's a lot of if then rules mm-hmm. that come to bring more uh, predictability and uh, more predictability to these systems um, so govern the way we govern ourselves is an algorithmic system mm-hmm. uh, that is has a lot of disadvantages and is very legacy and I hope we improve these algorithmics mm-hmm. eventually uh, it also has a lot of biases like every algorithmic system does to summarize I think that algorithms have the dangers that we put in them and if we learn to collaborate with each other better then these dangers will be lessened and controlled and more of the good potential will come uh, but really it's up to us as, us as humans to work together Continuing the conversation about algorithms, but now changing for the thing that you mentioned before about blockchain. First of all, I seem to see that almost every blockchain project nowadays is coming from a very highly educated person, usually with a lot of R&D beh- behind. So I assume that's something that you 
kind of are interested interested oh I've been working on blockchain systems basically this is a long story do you want it sure <laughs> um, I um, so when I was a postdoc in China I was a postdoc with NDI who was my computer science hero for many years before that mm-hmm. and he invented this field among the many fields he invented he invented this field called secure multi-party computation I have no idea what you just said could you repeat I, I, that? secure multi-party computation uh, he published something called uh, invented something called the Yao millionaires problem which actually is very simple I have some money in my bank account so I have a number and you have some money in your bank account you have a number and we just want to know which one of us as is richer uh, we suppose we're totally honest so we uh, use these numbers we just take them from our bank account but we don't want the poor one to be outed for how poor they are so we only want to learn which of us are richer but we don't want to learn each other's bank account okay uh, how do you do this magic so he invented an algorithm a protocol rather for us to figure out which one of us is richer and But none of us learns the bank account the balance of the other person mm-hmm. uh, this was in the 80s the early 80s this was called this was the first secure multi-party computation algorithm since then there were many others my next postdoc was in Denmark uh, in Aarhus University uh, that were the first to take this technology of or science rather of secure multi-party computation and bring it to the field they created a system based on game theory and cryptography and um, to uh, a clear bit auction bit bit uh, markets sugar bit markets so Denmark has these uh, sugar bits that farmers have uh, uh, are allowed to grow only a certain amount and mm-hmm. there were some farmers that wanted didn't want all these sugar bit allowances and some wanted more and they didn't want to each other to know what the sugar bit mm-hmm. allowances are worth for them so this university that had great people to design auctions to mm-hmm. full mechanisms and also great cryptographers are uh, created the first ever in the world uh, proj- software project to clear such a, to create and clear such a market without anyone learning anything about uh, each other's uh, private business secrets and Um, these are uh, even even Damgard and uh, many others I, I did a postdoc my second postdoc in this university um, they uh, deployed this project in 2008 and I saw this I saw this through both of my postdocs this futuristic techno- uh, science become technology mm-hmm. and I was like oh this is huge this is a field called uh, sometimes private computation sometimes uh, zero knowledge and There was just mm-hmm. a conference about it two days ago in Berlin called zero knowledge uh, there's a podcast called zero knowledge podcast there's great companies Enigma Kedit that's QDIT Zcash is based on this technology mm-hmm. um, and I think it will come to market and be hugely influential in the coming uh, decade or so uh, this is really cutting edge uh, cryptographic science from the 80s slowly becoming R&D through a process of R&D becoming technology and now coming to market and the huge superpower of this technology is creating private computation meaning we compute something together collaborate on computing a function a process mm-hmm. while keeping all of our private information keeping it private, private. yes um, basically building the, the process and everything that works in between the collaborating on that exactly. but everything that is supposed to be private stays private exactly so this is useful for anything between social networks auctions governance voting taxation 
um, various business processes, supply chains. There's so much work right now on supply chain, uh, which is kind of a, a B2B collaboration, a business-to-business collaboration by using zero knowledge. And that was my actual entrance to blockchain. I've come back from academia, moved to industry, but kept talking about this mm-hmm. uh, to the pirate, Israeli pirate party. I kept calling it crypto governance and, and was like explaining to people that I've seen the light in academia. I've... Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> And in 30 years at most, this will come to market because that's typically the time it takes to take a technology from science. 33-0. That's typical time it takes to take a technology from science to deployment, to widespread deployment in the field. If you think of RSA and other cryptographic techniques, they were invented by uh, the RSA, right? Rives Shamir Adelman in the 70s, uh, late 60s even, there were a lot of work. And uh, it was really only come to market in the late 90s with Zimmerman's PGP and the early 2000s with uh, banking, mm-hmm. uh, online banking and e-commerce, which was enabled by being able to write your credit card in, on the internet and transmit it secure, securely. Mm-hmm. This science exists since the 60s and 70s. If you were the president of the United States, you could talk to the president of, of China, of, uh, of Russia, over a secure communication line mm-hmm. enabled by this kind of technologies. However, if you were a simple citizen, uh, you didn't have access to such technology. And there was a re- gradual process of democratization, of adoption, that caused you to be able to now have Telegram and, and, uh, and uh, everything is SSH, is uh, HTTPS now. And um, so everything we send online these days is encrypted using these technologies that 40 years ago were the, uh, only available to presidents. Um, this is the typical route that the technology takes from science, from being like the brainchild of scientists to, the, um, to adoption in the field. Uh, I, I saw this in academia. I was like, oh, in at most 30 years, this will enable states to govern, to run on the blockchain. And I was like, it's kind of going to be like Bitcoin. Um, but I couldn't kind of put it in clearer terms. Um, mm-hmm. Then I moved to Berlin. We saw Ethereum, almost uh, me and friends uh, moved roughly at the same time, my partners in the mm-hmm. DC actually. Uh, we saw Ethereum roughly at the same time, 2005, uh, 2015, or, 2000, or early 2016, Andreas Antonopoulos, uh, we, we saw his uh, talk about Ethereum, mm-hmm. wrote some great books about Bitcoin and Ethereum um, uh, in Berlin, and we were hooked because this was what I was hoping for. I was hoping to see in 20, 30 years already existing. Before, before you go on deeper into this conversation, what do you think it can be done to expedite that transition? Adoption from mm-hmm. science to... I, I gave a talk about this, actually. It's on YouTube, uh, about specifically about zero-knowledge technology, which is something that me and my partners in the VC are super excited about. We, we want to fund these startups and we want to get behind them because we think this is the future. And we also think that we are very early on this. Uh, uh, we also think that we understand the potential better than, than many others. Um, uh, what, so a lot of what we think about, I'm a scientist, right? I know how to develop algorithms. I know how to think about uh, scientific R&D. Uh, but since moving to industry and then uh, to, to, uh, to VC, I've been thinking so much about adoption and how to speed this up. Mm-hmm. And I mostly have questions. Uh, but in academia, you get taught that questions are the best things. What uh, kind of questions do you have right now? So, so my question, my biggest question is exactly how technologies come 
from science to research to deployment, that's the easy part. That part I know, me and my partners know how to do. But from the time it's a valid, it's, a, it's a, an available technology like PGP was, how do you get people to trust it? That mm-hmm. is, I think, the biggest challenge. And uh, I have some ideas about this that you can see in my talk. Mm-hmm. It comes between uh, um, trust building, between communication tasks, between business development, between social proofing. You get the early adopters to kind of testify that it worked for them. Uh, right? The question is between the first people using, the first hackers using PGP and your family members, your parents using PGP. How do you... Or PGP or PHP? PGP is the pretty good privacy. It's the Zimmerman... Um, uh, system, co- encryption system, I think based on RSA. Mm-hmm. It's the first encryption system that was available to the public. The CIA put an export restrictions on it and uh, he was actually prosecuted. I think uh, it was dropped, but he was prosecuted by CIA or FBI or NSA, one of those, uh, for exporting uh, weaponry because encryption was considered weaponry. And it took quite a while until uh, the American government, in particular, realize that this technology is highly valuable and needs to be allowed to be exported out of the country. Um, so PGP was an early available encryption algorithm. Encryption meaning point-to-point encryption. So mm-hmm. the thing that allows me to securely... To see a message from me on WhatsApp, for example, or Telegram. Without anyone being able to, being able to eavesdrop on us. Interesting. Um, this was science from the 60s, turned into technology in the 90s, but only being adopted into, two, into the, in the 2000s. In the 2010s even, I think. Even. Uh, and the question is, what causes this delay? Why won't people just jump on it? And it's a complicated social problem. The early adopters need to adopt it and talk to everyone about it. And these are magic-sounding technologies. Being able to communicate securely between me and you shouldn't be a thing that exists in the world. It should be impossible. <laughs> the fact that it exists and can be mathematically proven is a total scientific miracle. Similar with zero knowledge. This is a miracle technology that we managed as mathematicians to prove that it's secure under some reasonable assumptions. But, but if you asked me, if I didn't know it's possible, and you asked me, I'd say, oh, I can probably prove it's impossible. There should be a, a proof, an information theoretic proof that there's that you couldn't be able to securely transmit over unsecured lines. But if you do that, then you're falling on that problem that we talked like half an hour ago, 45 minutes ago, about the confirmation bias. You're looking for a bias to prove something that's impossible, even though you already know that's possible. This is how scientists work. They form an hypothesis, which is the hypothesis they feel like, using their intuition. Mm-hmm. And then... Uh, so. And then they either prove it or disprove it. Mathematics and uh, the empirical sciences are very different in that sense because mm-hmm. when a biologist formulates or a medical researcher or a psychologist formulates an assumption, they would be um, fine with 5% that uh, they, get, they gather some evidence and they're fine with the probability of failure of 5% that they proved something and it's still wrong. If 20 of them does th- do this for their favorite hypothesis, one of them will be able to prove this wrong hypothesis. Mathematics doesn't work this way. Mathematics, up to a first approximation, you can say about it, some papers are wrong. But in general, mathematics, when you prove something, it's truly, it's true. Which, as a mathematician, it gives me a lot of freedom to formulate hypothesis according to what I feel like mm-hmm. and try to prove them. And if I and if I manage to prove them, then they're absolutely correct. And if I uh, fail, then uh, nothing came out of it. Mm. So so there's 
you could claim there's no social bias in mathematics. That's of course not true because some unpopular assumptions don't get hypothesized by anyone. So we never get to prove the stuff, true stuff that no one feels like proving. But um, that's a, for a different discussion. Of course. Um, so going back to, to the to blockchain, and I would like to, to, to ask you one question specifically. Is that one of the things that I th- think that scares most people is that blockchain is still overrun by developers and engineers and very technical people with very technical English, let's call it that. I think that the problem... Or Chinese or Russian. Sorry? Or Chinese or Russian. Yes. yes. But what I'm saying, English yeah. is uh, the, the common language that people yeah. are listening to. And I think that one of the, que- the problems that people are not... that are causing people not to adopt it, mm-hmm. it's because it's still very technical. And one of the things I, when I talk, I used to work in the blockchain space and I talked with my girlfriend a lot about that and she said, well, but I don't understand. I said, the thing is, you don't understand 99% of the things that we, we talk about or that we take for granted. Mm-hmm. Cows, how does a cow work? How does a spaceship work? Yeah. I, I don't even know, go that far. How does the internet work? What was my pencil produced? How can I have 4G on the subway? <laughs> That's too magic. <laughs> yeah. It, it's three levers of cement. Yeah. Then you have... No, it's floor. inside of the tunnel. Uh, inside the tunnel? Yeah, yeah. It's three meters of, of cement. Yeah. I have a ceiling. I have 200 people next to me. Yeah. How the hell do I have internet? Yeah, Skype was a similar... Pro- algorithms. Really, really good signal engineering and algorithms. That's the secret of it. Um, Skype was a similar thing. You needed... You know what kind of algorithmics you needed to transmit voice over IP in the 90s? I have no idea. It was insane. They did... And they enabled it. I mean, that's the power of algorithms. Someone smart runs and writes a really amazing algorithm and you create superpowers for humanity. And then you have... That's why we invest in this. And nowadays you have hundreds of, of... projects that have voice that yeah, have VoIP. but but now it's not that interesting anymore now i want that project that allows you to do zero knowledge supply chains so that uh i as a business am able to prove to you that mm-hmm. i paid an honest wage for my employees without you knowing uh how much exactly how many employees i had or how much i produced so i can prove to you stuff uh without revealing my private business information mm-hmm. beyond the fact that I'm trying to prove to you. That's the magic we're coming to. Um, you know, hearing aids that are just based on simple microphones mm-hmm. for cancelling uh, noise from speech. Um, databases that are decentralized so that uh, you can just uh, host data mm-hmm. on the cloud and at almost, uh, almost zero cost. In a private way, this is a company we invested in called Haya Networks. Haya um, Networks? Haya, H-A-J-A. It's a Berlin-Finnish corporation, uh, a great company funded by also Outlier and Polychain and Creator. And um, they are building database, centralized databases. So databases that are trustless, that are run on trustless uh, uh, infrastructure mm-hmm. and that are able to um, to run to be a data source for algorithm uh, for mm-hmm. for algorithms for decentralized apps, which is now not really something that uh, we have created that humanity has created yet. Oh, Alan, I'm pretty sure we could go on yeah. and talk for seven hours plus, but I think it's already 11 p.m. and I'm honestly starting to get a little bit tired. Yeah. Not of the conversation, and I'll ask you this on air. I don't care. 
let's please schedule another interview. Yeah, let's do that. Please do. Because I think actually have hours and hours of content that we can keep having we're both Berlin based yes yes well we it's a cool small relatively small city we can intersect a lot let's let's get our, our contacts and please let's do this let's before do we finish the conversation I always like to finish the interviews with a lightning round lightning round is really simple I'll ask you questions and then you have less than one minute to answer mm-hmm. tell me one book that if that has impacted you the most Uh, Yuval Noah Harari, the... Okay, now it's probably a cliche. Uh, Yuval Noah Harari, the history of mankind. Um, I wrote, I read it first in Hebrew. Is that from... Harari? Uh, it's, uh, it's this Israeli author. He's, he's amazing. It's the new guns German steel. Okay, could, could you send me that? H-A-R-A-R-I. So he's amazing. It's his first, his, his first book. Uh, later he wrote, uh, it says, uh, uh, recommended by Obama and probably Oprah okay, Winfrey well, and the whole thing. It's, uh, it's, 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 a, it's a cliche of a recommendation. Um, uh, yeah, uh, Weapons of Math, of Math Destruction, actually. I'm, I'm very interested in, in reading that. Do you have any life motto or life quote that you like to live by? Yes, actually. There's this Israeli journalist and writer is amazing. He's called uh, Yuval, uh, everyone in Israel seems to be called Yuval. Yuval, um, I forget his last name for some reason. Anyway, so he quotes one of the friends of his father um, that said, uh, if you know in advance you could achieve something, uh, you shouldn't, if, you, if you're starting on a project and you know in advance you can achieve it, you're aiming too low. Whoa. Yeah. Okay, I, I love that. I can send you that uh, blog do, post. Please do, but I love it. Love it, love it. Yeah, I, 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 I've, I've become a big believer in high-risk, high-reward. Also in academia, actually. I did high-risk, high-reward research. You should aim to do the thing that you'll succeed in with probability 50%, maybe even 10%, which is how I'm, I'm acting right now. In the VC um, world, probably it's 10% of success. Yeah, you should do that because that's where you're, um, you, that's where you're really valuable. If you can do something with 100% probability, then too many people can, can do it. Uh, someone else will just do it instead of you. Instead of the opinion thing, I'll ask you this that I wrote down. What have you learned in the last six months that you couldn't have learned without your direct experience in the decade prior? In the decade prior. Oh my God, I learned so many things in the last six months. I th- so I'm a big boy. A idealist and I uh, look at something like blockchain technologies and decentralization that has so much promise and I say this would be amazing and he convinced me my partner Luis convinced me that um, there's uh, it could be amazing but usually we'll end up in the same place where we started but a little bit different mm-hmm. because um, what will happen is the same power structures will kind of co-op the technology and we'll end up with a um, more decentralized ecosystem, but it wouldn't be a better ecosystem. It will just have its own ways of being uh, difficult and biased and problematic and hopefully somewhat better than the previous round. We see this with the internet, mm-hmm. right? The internet promised communication everywhere in the world and for people to be able to freely communicate with each other. And it totally fulfilled that promise. There was amazing work done and everyone can communicate with each other and they use this communication to spread cat gifs and gifs and <laughs> fake news <laughs> and to dox each other and to troll each other and to flame war each other. Uh, we see that the, the fact that the promise, the idealistic promise was fulfilled doesn't mean that that promise wouldn't create new difficulties in the world. 
One last question before we actually finish it. If I gave you six months, once again, I like the six months timeline. Mm-hmm. I, 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 work, I work in 10 years. Okay, <laughs> if I gave, but if I gave you six months to prepare for a TEDx talk and it couldn't be about blockchain or mm-hmm. algorithmic thinking or algorithm, algorithm building, what would it be about? Public policy, the importance of public policy in everything that we do. Public policy is a special field. I listen a lot to the Vox, uh, to the Weeds podcast mm-hmm. and um, I uh, they kind of uh, got me to read a lot about public policy and public policy is a very special thing because most of the things I as a scientist work on mm-hmm. is getting from zero to point a so I say there's no research on a topic or there's no no one knows how to do some target mm-hmm. a, a problem to solve some target problem I will get to point a I'm so brave and so amazing mm-hmm. but public policy people are much more brave and amazing because they get from point a to point B and that's much harder because you need to have you need when when it's not zero there's a whole great public policy discussion about the health care of Singapore mm-hmm. system of Singapore versus the Obamacare uh, change or revolution mm-hmm. and It was much easier uh, to build a healthcare system in Singapore because you started from nothing. It was a new country in the mm-hmm. 60s. You just start something from scratch and you design it correctly. But taking a system right now that has people that are doing well and doing poorly and moving it into a system where the overall is better, some people will lose out. And that's a much harder task. So I think this realpolitik of moving from point A to point B is fascinating and I want to learn about it and I think about it because that's partly what business is about, moving people from one solution to another. And I would give a talk about public policy and how it uh, expresses itself in various walks of life. We went through a lot of themes today and I'm not kidding when I say I really want to have you here on the podcast yeah. again. I want to talk with you seven hours straight with, with sun outside and not completely night. Where can people find more about your company, more about you? Where can people connect with you? Yes. So we have uh, some uh, internet presence. We'll have more and more. I've uh, doing, been doing a bit of writing on Medium. I have a blog post that uh, got some attention. And uh, I have like a draw of 30 more that, uh, you know, hopefully I'll get to publish uh, as, as the time goes. Um, And uh, so my Twitter uh, is, my Twitter account is Verbine, V-E-R-B-I-N-E. Uh, you can uh, reach us at berlinnovationventures.vc. And uh, just Google my name, Elad Verbine, and it's all pretty much available uh, there. And oh. uh, if you have, um, if you're like an algorithmic-based uh, company or founders that uh, want to, uh, to start a company and want to talk to us, please come talk to us. You don't have to be fundraising. We love talking to uh, really great entrepreneurs, setting their aims at very high, very uh, inspirational and high-risk, high-reward, algorithmic uh, development. Yeah, you love talking with them, and I really, really love talking with you every great time. Thank you so much for plugging into this episode. I truly hope you love this conversation as much as I did. I really hope you reach out to Elad and get to know him and talk a little bit more in depth about whatever it is you want. I'm sure you'll have a chance to be totally enlightened. This, any other information that you might have missed, will probably end up in the show notes. If you enjoy this conversation, consider subscribing to make sure that this podcast grows and we can get some more people and help everyone be the pioneers of their lives and careers. If there's any feedback, please feel free to reach out to me on social media or leave a rating and review on iTunes. 
A big thank you to Elad for his time and to Tonka PR, the company that arranged this conversation, to make sure that this happened and helping organize the Deutsche Telekom startup event in 2018. A big thank you for DJ Rodia for the music of the Pioneers show. So, till next time, talk to you later. Bye-bye.